Again, we're going to be in Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22. And once you arrive there, if you are able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You may be seated. Hey, good evening. Well, welcome to Providence. My name is Joseph. If I haven't had the privilege of meeting you, um, I am one of the. I serve on staff as one of the pastors here, and uh, it's a joy, as always, to be able to deliver God's word to His people. Uh, I actually haven't been in the pulpit for about a month, so I'm kind of out of ry- out of rhythm a little bit. Um, but I'm excited to be here tonight. Um, before we get into the scriptures, I have a quick and very important announcement. Okay, so. If you hear the word announcement and you typically tune out during that time, I would encourage you not to for this one, okay? Um, we have been so blessed to gather here. Uh, as some of you, if you're, not, if you're new here, you might not know that this is not our permanent dwelling place as a church. Uh, we gather typically off of 1960 in our own facility on Sunday mornings, but uh, we've been temporarily displaced because of some permitting issues with the fire department and uh, Harris County and all of those things. And so... Uh, more on this in a second, but we're getting very, 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 very close to being back in our building. Um, but because we have been so blessed to be able to meet here instead, the session here at Tuscan Cedar Presbyterian Church has gone out of their way to accommodate us. Uh, we've known from, from the very beginning that if anything were to, to, to shake down here where they needed their facility on a Sunday evening, we would have to oblige that. And so that has finally occurred this next Sunday. uh, So one week from today, uh, we will not be gathering here on Sunday evening because uh, the the death of someone in the church has occurred and they need the sanctuary for a memorial service. And so they couldn't get around it scheduling wise and we couldn't really get around it either. And, And this is something that has all happened within the past few hours. So this is brand new information to us. But with that being said, this is why it's an important announcement. We will not be gathering here next Sunday evening, okay, for uh, our our typical regularly scheduled gathering. What we intend to do instead is to gather on Saturday evening at 6 p.m. from 6 to 7 to do a night of prayer and worship. We 
basically as the elders came together quickly and uh, tried to listen to the Spirit the best that we possibly can and saw that one of the best things that we can do to redeem the time is rather to gather as a church and to pray for our church as we look forward to moving back into our facility, which could be within the next couple of weeks. I cannot give you a definitive date, but I can say that the work there has been completed, save one small little minute detail that we're hammering out this week, and then we should be able to get the fire marshal back in to pass inspection. So please be in prayer for that. It's been a long time. It's been three months since we've been out of our facility, and hopefully we won't be out much longer. But because of uh, the the uh, our gathering place here, and, and because APC needed their facility, of course, we're not going to put up with fight for that. We're, yeah, of course, you guys can use your facility for what you want to use your facility for. So, um, Saturday night from 6 to 7, we're going to gather for worship, okay? The second thing that we're going to do is on Sunday morning, because we're getting ready to move back into our facility and we've done some upgrades and things like that in the building that we're excited to show all of you guys, on Sunday morning we're going to mobilize a work day. Uh, And we're going to have more details about that coming out on social media and we'll send out a newsletter and stuff like that this week. But we're going to mobilize a work day on Sunday morning. And and we don't anticipate everyone to show up, but if we could get anywhere from 15 to 20 people to show up there to help prepare the building for our re-entry, that would be incredible. Like some painting, some touch-ups, some things like that. Yes, sir. Uh, yeah, th- sorry. The meeting on Saturday will be here at, from 6 to 7. We will meet in the Tascacita Presbyterian Church from 6 to 7. Sorry, I didn't clarify that. Um, and we will, like I said, we will just completely blast social media and your inboxes and everything like that with reminders. But I wanted to make you aware, if you show up for worship here next Sunday at 5 p.m., we will not be here. There will be a funeral here, and you will be showing up possibly to someone's funeral that you do not know, okay? Um, and, And that's just not a good look for anybody, okay? So please, please, please make sure that you don't show up. Uh, next Sunday at 5 p.m. because there will be a memorial service here for someone uh, that's a member or, or part of the APC family. So that announcement out of the way, again, we'll send you as much details as we possibly can this week. Um, and uh, again, we apologize for the inconvenience, but this all happened very quick and we were just trying to prayerfully um, pull something together with, uh, with a stick of gum and, and a paper clip, if you will. Um, and so we, we tried to MacGyver this situation, if you will. MacGyver cultural reference, anybody get it? Okay, all right. 80s child. MacGyver could fix anything. He could turn an airplane in there. He could make an airplane out of a flashlight, a plastic squirrel, uh, and yeah, a plastic figurine, and uh, basically a can of gasoline. He could make anything. So, um, not a part of my sermon notes. That's why that went so poorly. All right. So whether you're a Christian, not sure you're a Christian, or sure you're not a Christian, my prayer is always the same whenever we dive into God's Word. It's that you would, by God's grace, hear God's word clearly, and by his spirit, Christ would be exalted, and we would be compelled to obey him out of a posture of gratitude. So uh, would you guys join me in praying to that end before I proclaim the scriptures? Heavenly Father, we come before your throne of grace, and we humble ourselves in your sight. God, we recognize the great joy and privilege that it is to gather with one another, to hear your word proclaimed, to hear the gospel exclaimed in and among your people, God, uh, to to hear your word um, declared with authority and with conviction, God. It is a privilege, and to sing and to pray and to do all of the things that we're able to do this evening, God, it is a great grace that you give us, and so we recognize that. And Father, we plead with you by the power of the Holy Spirit to come and to speak to us by your word uh, in a way that is convicting and compelling, in a way that edifies the church and glorifies Jesus, and we pray this. In Christ's name. And everyone said, Amen. 
Okay, so we've been in a series discussing the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. And today, we're looking at the role of the Holy Spirit in reconciling people to one another in and through the local church. We're going to look at the role of the Holy Spirit in reconciling people to one another in and through the local church. Now, unless you have been dwelling under a rock, you are probably well aware or and even bothered to some degree, or maybe to a great degree, by the degree of division currently being exposed in our country. And I'm talking about not just political division, which I'm sure that's obvious. I'm talking about racial division. I'm talking about social division. I'm talking about moral philosophical division. Um, It seems as though anytime I read the news, watch the news, look at the Facebook feed, look at the Twitter feed, Um, That's one of the reasons, just FYI, why I like Instagram more, because those things tend to not show up as much. But uh, if you look at the Instagram, or you look at the Facebook feed, the Twitter feed, you basically just see extreme polarities being broadcast all over the place. Polarities on every different kind of perspective and pendulum you can possibly fathom. And it seems like our country is so divided at times, I don't know if you've ever been in this place, where it just feels like nothing is going to be able to reconcile us and to bring us together again. If anything, as time goes on, it seems to be getting worse. There have been atheists and moral philosophers that have said, uh, a a man by the name of Stephen Pinker wrote a book called Angels of Our Better Nature, and he basically makes the premise that um, because of the Enlightenment and because we are growing in our awareness of how culture actually works, that humanity is essentially getting better. That morally, we 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 are... becoming more enlightened, and because we are becoming more enlightened, we are also learning to treat one another with a greater degree of kindness and all of those things. Now, Pinker released that book maybe five to six years ago. I don't know if he still watches the news today, but I would say that that's not true. That humanity is not getting better. We're not getting more united. We are, if anything, getting more and more divided as time goes on. As worldviews and philosophies clash in races and cultures and socioeconomic backgrounds and our understanding of what gender is and all of those things begin to clash. What is, what is a, a, a true and genuine definition of marriage? As all of those things begin to clash, what is life? What is not life? Does it begin in conception? Does it not begin at conception? Right? As all of these ideas begin to clash together, we live in a time where it's like, is there anything that's going to be able to unite us. So we're all aware and bothered by the degree of division currently being exposed in our country. But what is the solution? Is it ranting and raving more? Is it getting more angry about the the matters and contributing to the division by choosing sides and just hoping that our side wins and dominates and overrides the other? Is it voting for the right candidate? Is it buying into the right moral philosophy or perspective? What's the solution? An acquaintance of mine who's a pastor in New York City tweeted this out last week, and I thought it fit perfectly into my introduction here. He said, his name is John Tyson, he said, lamenting at a meta and structural level about everything without embodying the solution at a local level can tend towards the kind of hypocrisy we abhor in others. Lamenting everything at a meta 
or at a structural level without embodying the solution at a loving local level can tend towards the kind of hypocrisy you abhor in others. Here's essentially what he's saying. He's saying ranting and raving and lamenting and crying and moaning and getting angry and getting ticked off about everything that's happening at a meta level but not embodying a solution at a local level just leads itself to hypocrisy where we have opinions about how things ought to be, but we don't live lives that demonstrate how they should be, or by God's grace, how He desires them to be. So withdrawing or or removing ourselves from the issue altogether, or just lamenting those things, or ranting or raving about those things, certainly can't be a solution. If you've paid attention to the course of political history, you should know by now that even voting in the right candidate isn't necessarily going to fix whatever you think the world's greatest ills are, right? Putting the right political candidate into office is like, in trying to address the social and cultural issues in our particular nation, is like squeezing a water balloon, right? On one end, you might get the squeeze and you might see some resolution to the things that you want to see resolution in. But on the other end, the balloon just blows up over here, right? And then now there's something new to address. And that's been the case throughout, cultural, throughout human history and no matter what the culture. So it can't be voting in the right candidate. It can't be buying into the right moral philosophy or perspective. And it can't be just doing nothing. So what is the solution? The Bible gives us a solution for every kind of division imaginable. And I am not speaking out of satire here about what I'm about to say. I'm not, I'm not in any way trying to be sarcastic and I'm not trying to overplay this. The Bible gives a solution. And the solution is the gospel-centered, spirit-filled local church. The way in which God desires to reconcile mankind with one another across socioeconomic spectrums, across ethnic spectrums, across gender spectrums, across all spectrums, the way in which God desires to reconcile humanity with one another is through the gospel-centered, spirit-filled local church. And Ephesians 2 makes that clear. See, the local church is supposed to be the place, the place where people from different ethnicities, cultures, classes, genders, perspectives come together to form a new way of being human together. That's supposed to happen in the local church. But Ephesians 2 isn't just about establishing peace between people groups that are divided from one another. The staggering claim that's being made here is that God is creating a new, united humanity in and through the work of the local church. And he's doing that by the Holy Spirit. And that is a staggering claim. And this is made possible, this this claim is made possible by the redemptive work of Jesus in the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to try and unpack this text with three different points. And I'm not going to read them all out now. I'm going to start with the first one. And I think one of the ways in which we can see what God is trying to do in and through the local church is the first point is we have to acknowledge our prejudice towards others. We have to acknowledge that as people, we are all prone to have prejudice towards one another. And I'm going to to show you a case study that the Apostle Paul uses in the book of Ephesians. And so, if you go with me back to Ephesians, we'll read in verse 11. Paul says, Therefore remember that at one time, Paul says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh 
called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So what's happening here? Paul is writing this letter, and clearly he is addressing the Gentiles. He says, you who were once far off, far off from what? Far off from being a part of the covenant promises of God and the covenant people of God. So he says, you Gentiles who were at one point separated and cut off from the covenant promises and the covenant people, you need to realize that you have now been brought near. And you have been brought near. And so what what has Jesus done? He's talking about, Paul is talking about that Christ has abolished this dividing wall of hostility that once existed between Gentile and Jew. So Paul is saying this this dividing wall, this, this hostility that once existed between you and the Jews, that wall has been abolished through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so you who are once far off have now been brought near. And like I said, this is a This is a case study for something that I think is universally true. Paul is speaking specifically about the division that existed in between Jew and Gentile, and that's a significant division, but it's something that's also universally true. See, Jews and Gentiles lived in hostility towards one another, and according to Paul, and this might seem like a staggering claim for some of you, what caused the hostility? In verse 12, he says, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, remember? Strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But in verse 13, he says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. In verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now, how did he do that? And this is the, this is the part that might seem a bit staggering for some of you, or for some of us. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. So Paul says that there was this dividing wall of hostility that existed between Jew and Gentile. And that dividing wall of hostility was in some part created by the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. There was a dividing wall of hostility that existed in between Jew and Gentile, and that wall in some part existed because of the ordinances that had been set in place to govern the children of Israel or to govern their worship. Let me make this a little bit more plain for you. Um, Paul uses the language of circumcision and uncircumcision. The Jews were those, of course, who had been circumcised, and that was a, um, an, an external sign that they were part of the covenant people of God. The Gentiles were not circumcised, which, of course, was a sign that they were not a part of the covenant people of God. And so Paul draws on something that would have been very familiar to both Jew and Gentile, and he starts talking about these laws, commandments, and reg- re- regulations. And it's important for us to understand that the Mosaic law and the Levitical law was given 
as a gift to show the rest of the world what a relationship with God was supposed to look like. In the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Law, the Levitical Law, these laws and these ordinances were given to the God's people so that way they would be separate and distinct from the rest of the world. And the rest of the world would look at the people of God and they would say, wow, what a great God they must serve. Look at how wise he is. Look at how majestic he is. Look at how glorious he is. These laws were given as a means to sanctify the people of God and to differentiate them from the rest of the world, but they were not meant, listen, they were not meant to create hostility. They weren't meant to create hostility between Jew and Gentile. But for some reason, what Paul is talking about here is he's saying there was a dividing wall that existed that created hostility between Jew and Gentile. And listen, it's not because there was anything wrong with the law of God, either the moral law, the ceremonial law, or the civil law. There's not that there was anything wrong with the moral law, the ceremonial law, or the civil law. It's that the Jews used the moral, ceremonial, and civil law in a way that created hostility. I want to make that clear. There was nothing wrong with the law. The law was perfect, came from God. What created the hostility, what created the dividing wall was the way in which the Jews used the law. They used it in a way that did not bring honor and glory to God. They used it in a way that created pride in them, that created prejudice in them. Didn't mean to draw reference to, you know, um, the, 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 uh, the literary work there. But God gave them the law so that it was supposed to be a blessing to them, but it became the basis of their hostility. See, the Jews despised the Gentiles because they didn't have the law and they didn't live like the Jews. But at the same time, if you understand the temple system in that time, at the same time, the Jews despised the Gentiles because the Gentiles didn't live like the Jews, but also the Jews were quite happy to keep the Gentiles completely separate from their community. They wanted to try and keep themselves distinct and separate from the Gentiles in almost every single way. And there was, that was manifest in the way in which the second temple had been built. Um, the Jews actually erected a wall outside of the temple which said, if you're a Gentile, even if you have been, um, what, what's the word, if, even if you've been proselytized in, you cannot enter into the temple courts any further than this. There was literally a wall that divided the Jews and the Gentiles in worship. The Jews were like, we don't want to have anything to do with you. It's okay if you want, to, you, you want to be grafted in, so to speak. But still remember, you are Gentile, we are Jew. Now, the reason that I say that this is a case study is because this is the dividing wall that existed between the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews used the law in a way that didn't glorify and honor God. It created hostility. And the Gentiles despised the Jews because of the way in which the Jews despised them. And so, there was this perfect storm of conflict that existed between these two people groups. And these two people groups were radically divided from one another. I cannot overstate this enough. They were radically divided from one another. The Jews wanted to have nothing to do with the Gentiles. The Jews, or the Gentiles for the most part, wanted to have nothing to do with the Jews. But as I said, this is a case study for what is a universal problem, and this is what I want want to, to kind of drive home. The universal problem is this. When God gives us good gifts, like he gave the children of Israel a good gift, right? He gave them the law. He gave them the covenant promises. He called them his covenant people. When God gives us good gifts, he gives us talents, he gives us strengths, he gives us abilities, he gives us our culture, whatever it is. We can take those good gifts 
and we can elevate them to such an absolute value that we can start to look down at everyone else who doesn't have what we have. God gives us good gifts, and we can take those good gifts, and we can elevate them to such a value that we then look down upon everyone else who doesn't possess what we have. This is what the children of Israel did with God's law. They took a gift that had been given to them, and they elevated it to such a place, they they internalized that, they basically started to see themselves as special, as if they had somehow earned that right to God's law, and they started to use God's law and God's commandments and all of those things in a way to differentiate themselves that resulted in pride. And it resulted in a prejudice towards the Gentile people. Whenever all along God says, I'm giving you the law so that way the nations can look in and see how glorious I am. I want you to be a blessing to the nations, right? But the Jews didn't use it that way. And this is not just true of individuals, but this is also true of cultures and classes of people too. We can take what is good about us. We can take what is the best about us. And we can elevate that to a place to where we so identify with it that we look down upon other people who do not possess that. Have you ever found yourself comparing your strengths to someone else's weaknesses? Have you ever done that? Most of the time, whenever we're critical of other people, that's exactly what we're doing. We're comparing our strengths with their weaknesses. You're weak in this area. You don't show up on time. You don't do this. You don't whatever. You don't, you know, like we, whatever their weakness is, we can say, you're not good at that. I'm good at that. But what if the script was flipped and then their strengths were compared against our weaknesses? How would that feel? We don't like that, right? But this is just, that, that's at base level. I want to show you that it's possible for that to be happening in your own life because we do that every day whenever we're critical of other people. We're essentially taking what we think is best about us, whether it be our perspective, our political point of view, our cultural background, our cultural moment, whatever it is, we might think that whatever is good about us has ultimately been earned by us, and so therefore we now get to look down upon others who do not possess those things. And this is what the children of Israel were notorious for doing. And so the reason that Paul writes this letter and the reason that he writes it specifically addressing the Gentiles is because the Gentiles, he wanted to make sure that they understood that they were in no way to be considered inferior to the Jews anymore. In no way. Paul says, I don't want you to see yourself as inferior. Yes, at one point you were cut off from the commonwealth. At one point you were separated. At one point you were aliens. At one point you were strangers. At one point you were completely separated from the covenant promises and people of God. But that is no longer true because of the person and work of Jesus. And so he wants the Gentiles to understand that there should be no inferiority. This is not just true, though, as I said, of individuals, but this can be true of cultures and classes. Now, I want to make something very clear. If you are concerned that at this point I'm going to go start riffing on racism and things like that in our culture, I'm not going to. I don't think that's specifically what this passage is about, certainly not in the context of this sermon series. However, I will say this. We would be foolish to pretend like racism doesn't exist like prejudice doesn't exist, like implicit and explicit cultural bias doesn't exist. And we would be foolish to believe that it doesn't run in all directions, both from the north to the south, to the east to the west, from the black to the white to the, right? The white to the black, it runs in all directions. From Democrats to Republicans, from Republicans to Democrats, 
The bias runs deep and it runs in all directions. So I want to say we would be foolish to pretend as if those things do not exist out there. And we would be foolish to pretend if we truly believe in depravity and original sin that those things don't also exist in here. On the one hand, you can't say, I totally believe in depravity and sin and that sin corrupts people and sin corrupts culture and sin corrupts all of these things, but to say, but it hasn't corrupted our church. It hasn't corrupted my heart. How prideful will we have to be to say that that's not true of us? Of course it's true. Of course it's crept its way into our lives and our hearts. Of course it has. And so I don't want to pretend like that's not the case. But again, I I don't want to make that the point of this sermon because I don't necessarily believe that it is. I believe the point here that Paul is trying to get across is that even our piety can make us some of the most divisive people in the world if we don't use it in the right way. The Jews were not using God's law and God's commandments and God's ordinances in a way that brought the Gentiles in. They were using it in an abusive and a manipulative way to keep the Gentiles out and to see themselves as superior to the Gentiles and to see the Gentiles as inferior to them. And like I said, we all have a tendency to do this, to take what's good about us, to lift it up, to compare it to others by looking down on them and excluding them. You see this in the, in the, in the example of the prayer of the Pharisee in the, in the Gospel of Luke where he says, God, he's standing in the temple. He says, God, I thank you for not making me like that man. And he's talking about a Gentile. There was actually a popular prayer that was kind of a a liturgical prayer in that time that was made known by a popular rabbi in which Israelite people prayed, God, I thank you for making me a man and not a woman, for making me a Jew and not a Gentile, and I thank you for making me free and not a slave. That was actually a liturgical prayer that was often recited by the patriarchal society, the men of Israel in that time. Now, for some of you, your skin is crawling. You're just like, oh my gosh, how prideful. But listen, in that time, in that cultural moment, it wasn't so prideful as much as it was. They were truly great. They were truly filled with gratitude for that. These men were truly gracious, or, or, or filled with gratitude that they were Jews and not Gentiles. They were truly filled with gratitude that they were men and not women. They were truly filled with gratitude that they were free and not slaves. Why? It's because... Gentiles were looked down upon, women were looked down upon, and slaves were looked down upon. So thank you, God, that I was born into this world and I am not any one of those things. Now, why do I point that out? It's because there's something in the heart of man that takes what is good about us and takes even what has been given to us and lifts it up and moralizes it and then uses it to look down on others. Each culture or perspective lifts up, its, lifts up its strengths and uses it look, to look down on others. This can be economic, this can be political, this can be personal. We do it. We do it in the church. The young can look down upon the old. The old can look down upon the young. The females can look down upon the males. The males can look down upon the females, right? You want me to get real personal with our church? The Calvinists can look down upon the Arminians. The Arminians can look down upon the the Calvinists. The cessationists can look down upon the continualists. The continualists can look down upon the cessationists, right? The dispensationalists can look down upon the amillennialists, right? The amillennialists can look down upon the the premillennialists. The list goes on. 
We can take what we believe is good about us and what we believe that we have maybe been given, this special revelation or this knowledge, and we can use it to look down upon others. It can happen in any and every way, and it always does. And what happens when that occurs, though, is division. We separate ourselves from one another based upon what we hold up. The Jews and the Gentiles, they had been separated by one another or from one another. And according to Paul, the work that Jesus did in verse 14 and 15, the work that Jesus did by breaking down that wall in his flesh and breaking down the dividing wall of hostility, he did so by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Now, this does not mean that God completely in Christ did away with the moral law. What he's saying is that Christ came in and fulfilled the law, and so now the Jews could no longer use the law as a means to separate themselves in a way that would make them feel superior to the Gentiles and the Gentiles to feel inferior to the Jews. Christ did away with that sacrificial system that made the Jews unique from the rest of the world, and it says that he is now creating one new man And a better translation of the Greek word there is actually new humanity. It's plural. He's come to create a new humanity. So the first thing that I want us to see is that what's happening here, hostility, what's happening between the Jew and the Gentile can and still does happen amongst us. We take what's good, we take what even God has given to us, and we use it it as a means to separate ourselves from others. And in a best-case scenario, listen, please listen, in a best-case scenario, that separation manifests itself in kind of a quiet, distant apathy. I don't really care about you or your perspective or your culture or your background or your whatever. I don't really care about you, but I'm not going to make a big fuss about it. What I'm rather going to do is just keep myself distant from you. That's in the best-case scenario. In the worst-case scenario, it manifests itself in a real, vengeful, angry hostility that actually acts in vengeance in vindictive ways against people that are different than us. Where bigotry turns into hatred and hatred turns into violence. Right? Now you say, thank God that I'm not a violent person whenever it comes to my prejudices. You may not be violent, but you might gossip. You might not tear someone down with your fist, but you can still tear them down with your mouth. And this manifests itself in and among the people of God still to this day. And that's why this word to me is so relevant. Whenever we get to the moment here in a minute, or whenever we get to the point here in a minute where we see that the Holy Spirit is now creating this new humanity in the local church and we see how God desires us to live in and among one another, it's so important that we recognize that those prejudices and things like that can still exist in our lives because if not, you can't repent of a sin that you don't acknowledge. And if we don't repent of the sins that we don't acknowledge, then we don't grow in grace to become who God desires us to be. So the first thing is I want us to acknowledge that we have not just the Jews, not just the Gentiles, but we ourselves have our own dividing walls of hostility, if you will, that we have built up around God and around this church and around our own lives that keep us separated from other people. And those might be built in a way that, like I said, lends itself to apathy, or in worst case scenario, it actually lends itself into violence or 
vitriol. The second point that I want to make is that if we're truly going to become the kind of church that Jesus wants us to be, a church where we seek and pursue reconciliation that is governed and guided by the power of the Holy Spirit, then we have to be people who embrace our new identity in Jesus. See, in verse 12, I'm going to go back and read again. Paul speaking to the Gentiles. He says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So Paul says to the Gentiles, at one point you were totally separated. At one point you were completely cut off. At one point you were aliens. And listen, aliens have no rights. They have no privileges. They have nothing. Whenever they come into a foreign land, at least they didn't back then. And so Paul is essentially saying, prior to Christ, you had no good ground to stand on that would make you in any way be entitled to the covenant promises. Now, the reason that Paul wants to drive this point home to the Gentiles is because he wants them to realize that they came from nothing, from being cut off, from being separated, from being lost, from being aliens, from being strangers, from being all of those things. They came from being nothing to now being made new. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So the second thing we have to do is we have to embrace our new identity in Jesus. We have to recognize that Christ himself is our peace and he has in his work on the cross, or through his work on the cross, he has made the two one. Now, I want to make this clear. The goal was not to make the Gentiles Jewish, and the goal was not to make the Jews Gentiles. The goal that Paul is getting at, that Christ accomplished, that Christ won for us, the goal was to make a new humanity altogether. It is to redeem that which was destroyed in the fall. Whenever Adam and Eve rebelled against God, it says that also our relationship, it makes it clear that our relationship with one another was broken and fractured, so there was not only a vertical breaking of God's creation, but there was a horizontal breaking of God's creation where we not only broke fellowship with God, but we broke fellowship with one another. And so what Paul is getting at here is essentially what Jesus has come to do is he has come to make right that which has gone wrong. Not just vertically, but also horizontally. He has come to be our peace. He has come to preach peace to us, to those who were far off and to those who were near. You don't, the reason it's important for us to understand, he says, to those who are far off and to those who are near, to the Jew who was close by, sorry, to the Jew who was close by, to the Gentile who was far off, he wants to make it clear, your past doesn't disqualify you if you're a Gentile. And your past doesn't pre-qualify you if you're a Jew. Peace had to be preached to both. Peace had to be preached to the Jew and peace had to be preached to the Gentile because what Jesus has come to do is to create a new humanity. The peace of Jesus both deconstructs our past and it reconstructs our future. The work of Jesus had to deconstruct the religious, cultural, and racial divisions that existed between the Jew and the Gentile. And the peace of Jesus now has to deconstruct and reconstruct 
our own personal biases, whether they be religious, cultural, racial, or otherwise, Jesus essentially does the same thing today. As I said before, the Jew used their calling as God's chosen people to judge and exclude the Gentiles, but God wanted to make it clear to both the Jews and the Gentiles that he was creating a new humanity, one in which even the Jews had no right to judge others. Through the cross, Jesus tears down each and every wall that we construct to separate ourselves from others, and he seeks to create in the place of that wall a new humanity where there are no walls. As I alluded to earlier, in that time, Second Temple Judaism, there was not just a wall that excluded the Gentiles from the innermost courts, like the, the way that the temple worked itself out, as you can imagine. You had the Holy of Holies, which is the place that only the high priest could go, and that was just once a year. Then outside of that, you had a specific course for, or a court for the, for the priests, the Levites. And then outside of that, you had a court for the Israelite men where they could come and worship. Then outside of that, you had a court for the women. Then outside of that, you had a court for the Gentiles. Then outside of that, you had the city. So there were all of these, there were literally divisions between each one of those. There were divisions between high priest and priest, priest and Israelites, Israelites and women, women and Gentiles. And what Paul is saying is that Jesus came and tore down every single one of those walls. That's why Paul says with great clarity to the Corinthians, there is now no longer slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, barbarian or Scythian. Paul is essentially saying Christ has brought them all down. He has leveled the playing field and he has given us all access in one spirit to the same God. Every single person. Regardless of your background. Regardless of your cultural heritage, regardless of your religious affiliation, regardless of any of those things, Christ has come to tear down those walls. To which I would say, what Christ has come to tear down, church, let us not rebuild. And let us be cognizant of the fact that we are prone to build walls, not only around ourselves, but around our church. But I want to make this clear. I'm going to keep reading. Because of what Jesus has done, we now have access to God's presence. But listen, this isn't just an individual access. This is a corporate access. Verse 16. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. Verse 18. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the prophets or the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. As I said, This isn't just an individual access. This is a collective access. What Jesus came to do is he came to tear down all of those walls around the temple system and he came to give us all access to God's presence. Even more than that, he came to make sure that God's presence would now dwell in us, which we've already talked about in this series. But I want us to see that whenever 
Jesus points to those walls being torn down and he's talking about creating in the place of two, now one. When he's talking about creating in the place of two distinct people, now one new man, he is literally recreating the way in which the world was designed to function. There was never meant to be, and you need to understand this, there was never meant to be racial division. There was never, there was one race that was created and that was the race of man. And that is how we were designed to function. So what God is doing in and through the local church is he is reuniting humanity and he is creating one new man. He is recreating the human race where we no longer identify ourselves primarily by our culture or primarily by our politics or primarily by our neighborhood or primarily by our any of those things. Where he, he has come to now establish one new man where we primarily identify ourselves by Jesus. Now, I want to make this clear. That is not to say that whenever you become a Christian, your culture goes away and it's no longer significant. That's not at all what I'm saying. I think the Bible makes it very clear that in the book of Revelation, there will be people from every tribe, nation, tongue around the throne, which means that God himself sees color, which means we shouldn't play dumb and pretend like we don't. Color still exists. Culture still exists. Differences still exist. What Paul is getting at is that our, dis- our differences no longer divide us. We can come together in Christ in spite of our differences. And actually what happens is our differences create this beautiful tapestry in which the, ch- the culture now reflects the full glory of God. Now, I got to skip ahead. I don't want to, but I got to for the sake of time. God desired to create one new man, Jew and Gentile, comprised of all humanity, and he desires to create one new humanity, and he desires to do that in and through the local church. I'm going to make this point before I move on to my final. I'm going to miss a little sub-point before I move on to my final and close this out. Listen, if you're in a club, like some sort, like if you're in a tennis club or, you know, a rotary club or something like that, I know some of you are like, rotary club, what's that? Some, about a third of the room knows what that is, two-thirds of the room has no idea what that is. If you're in some sort of club, you're likely joined together in that club because you share one or two common interests with other people. And you connect connect with people based on those interests. And so there's there's a relatively strong degree of affinity there. We both love tennis, or we both love golf, or we both love the Rotary Club, and we love our neighborhood, or we love, you know, whatever it is. You're in a book club, and you really love to read. Um, You're probably passionate about those connections. And my guess is that sometimes whenever you're out in the world and you find someone else that has an affinity for the things that you have an affinity for, you get excited whenever you connect with them, right? Like me, being raised by a man who is from Boston and being a Boston sports fan, listen, I'm still a Houston fan too, all right, because I was born and raised in Houston, but I still, being someone that has been discipled in the way of Boston sports, anytime I meet another Boston sports fan in Houston, I'm like, oh, let's talk, you know? Or even someone that's like sympathetic towards the fact that Boston's awesome. Like, I'm, I'm just like, yes, let's talk. There's excitement there. There's excitement there. Listen, I'm not going to have to list off all the championships and Super Bowls, am I? Um, but there's excitement there. There's affinity there. Now, if you share the same race or culture with someone, there is a much more profound shared identity, is there not? So at one level, you have a deep connection to people with, a sh- with a shared hobbies, 
You probably also have a deep connection with people that have shared political interests. You probably also have a deep connection with people that have shared whatever interest. What Paul is essentially alluding to here is that there is a real sense in which our cultural identity is a, is a deeply shared identity that we all enjoy with one another. It's something, it's, it's something that we, we live out of, our cultural situatedness, if you will. I saw this to be true. My wife and I saw this to be true whenever we lived overseas as uh, missionaries in South Africa for a season of our life, our early marriage. Um, we were there, and in, in, in where we lived, we were pretty much the only Americans that we knew. And after we had been there for like a number of months, we met another American couple. And even though, listen, we love South Africa and we love South African culture, we enjoyed it there. But you know what happened when we met that American couple? Oh, Americans. People we can talk to and converse about, just about anything, right? We could talk about McDonald's and they would know what we were talking about, right? We could talk about chilies, even though we didn't like chilies, and they would know what we were talking about. We could talk about anything and everything. We could talk about history. We could talk about... So because there was this shared cultural affinity with these Americans, there was this instant connection that we didn't share with, say, some of our African or other foreign brothers and sisters that we lived around. Paul is saying that you have even greater than your ethnicity, even greater than your social class, even greater than your gender. In Christ, you have something that unites you that's far deeper than all of those things. Far deeper than all of those things. So when you travel around the world, you don't just get excited because you see another American, you get excited because you see another Christian. And that should be the thing that unites you at at the deepest level is your identity and your union with Christ. And even though you're still connected to your culture, your connection to fellow Christians goes even deeper. And this can't be done. This, this kind of connection isn't something that we could do with our own mental or fortitude. fortitude. It has to be something that is done by God through the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. And so my final point is that I want us to see that in this passage, we see a clear vision that we are called to be a people that manifest the presence of God in the world. So we have to be a people that are not only deeply committed to the peace of God governing the culture of our church, but we also have to make sure that we are an inclusive community to people from all walks of life because what, what Paul is getting at here is that God desires to give access to his spirit, to his presence through the local church. Listen to me, church. If we turn ourselves inwardly, If we turn our back to the world around us, we are essentially denying access to the very thing that Jesus came to give people access to, which is the presence and the power of God. Theologian Michael Horton says this, he says, the church should be an extrovert. The church should be an extrovert. If you find yourself in an introversive church, you are finding yourself in a church that has essentially turned its back on God's call upon that church. The church needs to be an extrovert. Anyone in the room here, it's a rhetorical question, an extrovert. You know you're an extrovert if the fact that whenever you show up to the church gathering, you can't wait to get here because you can't wait to see people and shake their hand and smile. You know you're an introvert is that whenever you walk through those back doors, you're like, what are the bare minimum number of people that I can shake their hands and still be considered Christian today? But God calls us to have this disposition towards the nations, towards the world, towards the world around us in which we are extroversive. We want people to come in. We want people to have access to God through the same spirit that we have access to. 
We want them to experience that. And so what God likens us to is a temple. Now again, in that time, God's temple was the dwelling place for his presence, and his temple was situated in the city of Jerusalem. And prior to that, it was a tabernacle that they kind of traveled around with, but it it was situated in the city of Jerusalem. And the temple was the center point, the central point of worship for the Jewish people. Now Paul says that the church, the church is the temple of God's presence. The church is the temple of God's spirit. Now the church, (laughs) the church, and this is an extremely important point, the church is not meant to be separate or separate and cut off from the world. The church is meant to give the world access to it. We have to be deeply committed to including people in our church community, people from all walks of life. Listen, as I said from that quote earlier, that Jesus isn't interested in some symbolic form of love that demonstrates itself in rants on social media. Jesus is interested in a local church that acts as a house of hospitality. And we need to be willing to, listen, cross the street. We need to be willing to cross the bridge. We need to be willing to cross the proverbial railroad tracks. We need to be willing to cross the hallway, to cross the cubicle, to cross the boundary, to cross the divide. That's what God has called us to do. He has called us to be culture crossers. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. A church that has turned its back on the nations and its external call is a church that is not fulfilling the call of God on it. Now, this is important as well. I want to make it abundantly clear. The kind of church that Jesus is calling us to be, dwelling in in the same house with people that are utterly different than you and, and dwelling in the same house with people that are from different cultures and classes and backgrounds and genders and all of those things, dwelling in that house together with people is difficult. Is it not? Yes, it is. It is. And there are things that we can do that actually tear at the fabric of that kind of community. Bonhoeffer, I'm not going to read the quote for the sake of time, but Diedrich Bonhoeffer in his book called Life Together basically says that one of the greatest threats that we have to living in Christian community with one another is our ideal of Christian community. Bonhoeffer says that we can so idealize what the church is supposed to be like that we get this image of church in our minds and we only love that version of church. And we don't actually love this version of church that's actually in front of us. We love the church that bends to our idea of how the church ought to be. We don't love the church that we're actually committed to in covenant partnership with. And so Bonhoeffer says that that can destroy church, that can destroy church community. And so I want to say that It's important that we understand if we're going to try and live out of this kind of inclusive nature as a people of God, inviting people to have access to the same spirit that we have access to, then we have to lay down our idealized visions and versions of church, and we have to, listen to me, actually embrace the church that we're a part of in the community that we belong to. And listen, we can't demand, we can't, we shouldn't demand that the church bend to our desires. We can't demand that the church become conformed into our image, if you will. We shouldn't consume from the church. We shouldn't run 
from the church. We have to love the family that God unites us to, and the family that God unites us to has to learn to be a loving community to those that are not yet united to it. If this sounds impossible, and I'm sure it does, we aren't on our own. What Paul makes abundantly clear is that we have in and among us the Holy Spirit. It says, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Later in Ephesians, we are called to maintain the unity of the Spirit. To maintain the unity of the Spirit. Now listen, we can't create the kind of bonds that we're talking about. We can't do that in our own effort. We just can't. We can try, we can't. The unity of the Spirit that we have to maintain, the unity of the Spirit that we work from, is a unity that was purchased for us by Jesus. And the way in which we maintain the unity is what Paul is getting at with the Gentiles, is he is telling the Gentiles, I want you to remember where you came from. I want you to remember that you were cut off. I want you to remember that at one point you were not joined to this temple, but now you are joined to this temple. And this temple is one in which Christ himself is the cornerstone of. And that is the way in which you will maintain the unity of the Spirit, is by remembering where you came from and now remembering who you are in Christ. Remembering that when you were cut off, you had no legal standing, you had no rights, you had no privileges, you had no ability to, to, to call or to, to, to proclaim God's covenant promises as your own. But now in Christ, you have all that you need and far more than you deserve. So remember that you were called to maintain the bond of the unity of the Spirit. And so I know, brothers and sisters, this sounds tough. But if we see Jesus as the cornerstone, Jesus the one who was cast out so that we could be brought in, Jesus who is the one who is the cornerstone that the builders rejected, so that we might not be rejected. If we see Jesus as the cornerstone of the church and we remember the work of Jesus as the foundation of the church, then it means that he, he, Christ, will continue to be the head of our church and we won't try and assume the position as heads. And listen, the last thing I'll say before I pray. The church will never become what God intends it to be if we have something else or someone else acting as our cornerstone. If your job, if your hobbies, if your family, if your politics, if your preferences, if your personality, if your culture, if your race, acts as the cornerstone of your life, meaning if there is anything else that governs how you make decisions, if there is anything else in your life that governs how you live your life in general, if there is anything else in your life that is acting as your cornerstone, then we will not become the glorious dwelling place of God's presence and power. At best, we will become a place where the church is doomed and destined to be conformed into our image and not in the image of Jesus. Not a dwelling place for the Spirit, but a dwelling place for people who are just like us. A dwelling place for people who we are comfortable being around. 
But as I said, if we remember that Jesus was rejected so that we would be brought in, that he was cast out so that we could come into God's presence, and that the Holy Spirit is active in and among us, and the Holy Spirit so desperately desires that we would go out so that people could be brought in, if we can remember that, then we begin to reflect the kind of church that Paul's getting at here. A church where dividing walls of hostility have been brought down, a church where people can be, be united, a church where people that are different can feel comfortable around one another. And my prayer is that Providence, listen, would become that kind of church. My prayer is that we would be the kind of church where no matter who you are, no matter where you come from, no matter what your background is, no matter what your politics are, or your race is, or your culture is, or your nationality, that none of those things would define how we treat you. They wouldn't cause us to put you at arm's length. If anything, that make us all the more eager to invite you in and to embrace you because as this passage makes clear, we are called to be the, twi- the temple of God's presence. And what Jesus has torn down, as I said, let us not rebuild and reconstruct. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. Again, God, we thank you for the work that you have done in and through Christ to make us a new humanity, to create in and through the local church a place where people can be reconciled to one another, a place where peace can reign and rule. God, a place where people can be fully known and accepted, not because of who they are or what they've done, but because of who Christ is and what he has done for them. God, I I thank you that you have purchased that for us. You have won that for us on the cross in the work of Christ. And I pray that our church, Father, would be built upon that conviction and that revelation. And I pray for the Holy Spirit that, that indwells the church and that gives life to the church and that, that we as the local church are to be the temple. God, I pray that we would be a place that is inclusive and inviting, God, that we would not be a church that has divisions or walls built up around our lives or around our church itself. God, I pray that the Spirit of God, the extroversive Spirit of God that dwells inside of us would be released to go out from us and to invite more people to come and join us. I pray over Providence to not in any way, shape, or form, God, be defined more by our culture than we are by Christ. I pray that we would be defined by the gospel, filled with the Spirit, and eager to see those who are far off to be brought near. And if there be any prejudice, any bias, any pride that's in our hearts right now, I pray that we would repent tonight before we go home. And I pray that this is something that we would be willing to talk about openly and honestly with one another, to seek reconciliation with one another, to allow the maintain or to, to, to work on maintaining the unity of the spirit that's at work among us, God. Help us. We pray this in Jesus' name. And say amen.